0: Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Okay, had a lot of business travel, but back in the saddle, so here we are back with Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Chapter Fifty Three: The Early English Masonic Guilds. To Brother William James Hugan, are we indebted more than to any other person? for the collection and publication of all the Masonic guild ordinances that have been preserved in the British Museum, in the archives of old lodges, or in private hands. In the beginning of his treatise on the Old Charges of the British Freemasons, published in 1895, a book so valuable and so necessary that it should be in the library of every Masonic student, Brother Hugan says, Believing as we do that the present association of Freemasons is an outgrowth of the building corporations and guilds of the Middle Ages, as also a lineal descendant and sole representative of the early secret Masonic sodalities, it appears to us that their ancient laws and charges are specially worthy of preservation, study, and reproduction. No collection of these having hitherto been published, we have undertaken to introduce several of the most important to the notice of the fraternity. As Brother Hugin is famous for the accuracy and fidelity with which he has personally made or caused to be made for him by competent scribes, copies of these constitutions from the originals, we shall select from one of the earliest of them the ordinances or regulations, which shall be compared with those of the early Saxon guilds, specimens of which have been given in the preceding chapter. An account of these constitutions and charges, or old records as they are sometimes called, will be found in the first part of this work, where the subject is treated at length of the legend of the craft, which they all contain. We will not find it necessary therefore to repeat that discussion, and will content ourselves by merely reminding the reader of it. We might have selected for comparison the statutes contained in the Regius poem published by Hallowell, or those in the Cook manuscript, as both are of an older date than any in the collection of Brother Huguen. But as they are all substantially the same in their provisions, and the latter have the advantage of greater brevity, we shall only refer occasionally when required to the former. The manuscript which is selected for our first consideration at this stage is that known as the Lansdowne, whose date is supposed to be about 1600. The date of the manuscript is, however, no test of the date of the Guild whose ordinances it recites, for that was much, of course, older. This manuscript was once thought to be nearest in point of age to the poem published by Halliwell, to which the date of 1390 is given. And Hugen says that the style of calligraphy or handwriting and other considerations seem to warrant so early a date being ascribed to it. In copying the statutes from the copy published by Brother Hugen, we have made an exact transcript, except that we have numbered all the statutes one after the other in their regular order instead of dividing them, as is done in the original, into two series. This has been done for convenience of comparison with the guild ordinances inserted in the preceding chapter, and which have been numbered in a similar method. The wording of the statutes, for a similar reason, has been modernized. Charges in the Lansdowne Manuscript 1. You shall be true to God and Holy Church, and to use no error or heresy, you understanding and by wise men's teaching, also that you shall be loyal men to the King of England without treason or any falsehood, and that you know no treason or treachery, but that you amend and give knowledge thereof to the King and his council. Also, that ye shall be true to one another, that is to say, every mason of the craft, that is mason allowed, you shall do to him as you would be done to yourself. Number 2. Ye shall keep truly all the counsel of the lodge, or of the chamber, and all the counsel of the lodge that ought to be kept by the way of masonhood. Also, that you be no thief nor thieves to your knowledge free, that you shall be true to the king, lord or master that you serve, and truly to see and work for his advantage. Also, you shall call all masons your fellows or your brethren, and no other names. Number three, also, you shall not take your fellow's wife in villainy, nor deflower his daughter or servant, nor put him to disworship. Also you shall truly pay for your meat or drink, wheresoever you go to table or board, whereby the craft or science may be slandered. These are called the charges general that belong to every true mason, both masters and fellows. Then follow 16 others that are also called charges, single for Masons allowed. The only difference that we can see between the two sets of charges is that the first set referred to the moral conduct of the members of the guild, while the second referred to their conduct as craftsmen in the pursuit of their trade. The former were laws common or general to all guilds, the latter were peculiar to the Freemasons as a craft guild. The second set is as follows. Number four. That no mason take on him no lord's work, nor other men's, but if he know himself well able to perform the work, so that the craft have no slander. Number five, that no master take work, but that he take reasonable pay for it, so that the lord may be truly served, and the master live honestly, and pay his fellows truly. Also, that no master or fellow supplant others of their work. That is to say, if he have taken a work, or else stand master of a work, that he shall not put him out without being he unable of cunning or skill to make an end of his work also that no master nor fellow shall take no apprentice for less than seven years and that the apprentice be able of birth that is of freeborn and of limbs whole as a man ought to be and that no mason or fellow take no allowance to be made mason without the assent of his fellows at the least six or seven and that he be able in all degrees that is freeborn and of a good kindred meaning of lawful birth true and no bondsman, and that he have his right limbs as a man ought to have. Also, that a master take no apprentice without he have occupation sufficient to occupy two or three fellows at least. Seven, also that no master or fellow put away lord's work to task that ought to be journey work. Eight, also that every master give pay to his fellows and servants as they may deserve, so that he be not defamed with false working. Nine, Also, that none slander another behind his back to make him lose his good name. 10. That no fellow in the house or abroad answer another ungodly or reprovably without cause. 11. That every master mason reverence his elder. Also, that a mason be no common player at the dice, cards, or hazard, nor at any other unlawful plays through the which the science of the craft may be dishonored. 12. That no mason use no lechery, sexual sin, nor have been abroad, whereby the craft may be dishonored or slandered. 13. That no fellow go into the town by night, except he have a fellow with him, who may bear record that he was in an honest place. 14. Also that every master and fellow shall come to the assembly, if it be within fifty miles of him, if he have any warning, and if he have trespassed against the craft, to abide the award of the masters and fellows. Fifteen. Also, that every master mason and fellow that have trespassed against the craft shall stand in correction of other masters and fellows to make him accord, and if they cannot accord, to go to the common law. 16. Also, that a master or fellow make not a mould stone square, nor rule to no lowen, nor set no lowen work within the lodge, nor without to no mould stone. 17. Also that every mason receive or cherish strange fellows when they come over to the country and set them on work if they will work as the manor is, that is to say, if the mason have any moldstone in his place on work, and he have none, the mason shall refresh him with money unto the next lodge. 18. Also that every mason shall truly serve his master for his pay. And lastly 19. Also that every master shall truly make an end of his work, task, or journey, whichsoever it be. Now in the comparison of these charges with the ordinances of the early guilds, we will find very many points of striking resemblance, showing the common prevalence of the guild spirit of religion, charity, and brotherly love in each, and confirming the opinion of Huguen, and the theory which has been constantly advanced, that the one was an outgrowth of the other. The religious spirit which was a feature of all the guilds is here shown in the first statute, which requires the Freemason to be true to the church and to use no error or heresy. The charge in the second statute, to keep the council of the lodge, is met within nearly all the guild ordinances. Thus in the ordinances of the Shipman's Guild in the date of 1368 it is said, Quote, Whoso discovereth the council of the guild of this fraternity to any strange man or woman, and it may have been proved, shall pay to the light two stone of wax, or shall lose or forfeit the fraternity till he may have grace. That is, he shall be suspended from the guild until restored by a pardon. End quote. The same regulation is found in the ordinances of several other guilds, whose charters have been copied by Tullman Smith. In those of the Guild of St. George the Martyr, dated 1376, there is no option or choice afforded of a fine as the penalty for such wrongdoing. The words of the statute are that, quote, no brother nor sister shall discover the counsel of this fraternity to no stranger on the pain of forfeiture of the fraternity forevermore, end quote. Nothing short of absolute expulsion was meted out to the betrayer of the guild secrets. In the charges of a Freemason, said to be extracted from the ancient records, published by Anderson in 1723 and adopted by the Grand Lodge soon after the revival, for the government of the speculative Freemasons, this principle of the guilds has been preserved. It is there said, in Charge 6, Section 5, that the Freemason is, quote, not to let his family, friends, and neighbors know the concerns of the Lodge, end quote. To this very day, it is an almost unpardonable crime to disclose the secrets of the Lodge. The spirit of the Guild has been preserved in its successor, the Modern Lodge. The prohibition in the fourth charge, to dishonor a brother or put him to disworship, is found in the earliest of the Guilds. That of Orkey, for example, prescribes a punishment to any member who misgreets, that is, greets improperly, insults, abuses, or injures another member. The guild was always careful to preserve a feeling of brotherly love and harmony among its members, a disposition which is also the characteristic of the Masonic fraternity. Hence we find the tenth statute, or point, of these Masonic charges declaring that none shall slander another behind his back. But the very language of the fourth statute of the orc charges would appear to have been borrowed from the ordinances of some of the guilds. In those of the guild of the Holy Trinity, whose date is 1377, we meet with these statutes, No one of the guild shall do anything to the loss or hurt of another, nor allow it to be done so far as he can hinder it, the laws and customs of the town of Lancaster being always saved. No one of the guild shall wrong the wife or daughter or sister of another, nor shall allow her to be wronged so far as he can hinder it. From the 5th to the 20th charge, the regulations principally relate to the government of the craft and their work. There is some difficulty in comparing these with the early craft guilds from the lack of charters of the latter which have been preserved. But wherever there are any points common to both, the analogy or resemblance between the two is at once detected. Thus in the charter of the guild of Fullers at Lincoln, which guild was begun in 1297, it is said that none of the craft shall be work at the wooden bar or full cloth with a woman unless with the wife of a master or his handmaid. Tolman Smith says that he cannot explain this rule. But it was in fact only an effort of the guild spirit common to all the craft guilds, which forbade one who is a member or freeman of the guild from working with another who is not a member. The guild of the tailors of Exeter had an ordinance that no one shall have a board or shop of the craft unless free of the city. And in the charter of the guild of tilers or pointers, layers of tile or pointers of walls, of Lincoln, it is said that no tiler or pointer shall stay in the city unless he enters the guild. The same spirit of social and trade restraint and control is shown in the 17th Statute of the Masonic Constitutions which forbids a master or fellow from working with a Cowan, or one who is not a Mason allowed, that is to say, one who has been admitted into the Fraternity or Guild. This exclusion from having a part or share in labor of all who were not members of the Fraternity was a regulation common to all the craft guilds but was perhaps more fully developed and more stringently urged in the constitution of the Masonic Guild than in those of any of the others. It is from this principle of reserve that the modern lodges of speculative Freemasonry have derived their strict regulation of holding no communication with Freemasons who have not been duly initiated, or with lodges which have not been legally constituted. Contempt, rebellion, or disobedience to the laws of the craft or of the Guild was severely punished. The ordinances of the Smith's Guild of Chesterfield prescribe that any brother who is contumacious or unruly or sets himself against the brethren or gainsays any of these ordinances shall be suspended, denounced, and excommunicated. A similar regulation is to be found in the other guilds. According to the Lansdowne statutes, a Freemason is required to be true to every member of the craft and to reverence his elder or superior. And in the points of the statutes of the Masonic Guild, as set forth in the Hallowell or Regis Manuscript, it is said that the Freemason must be true and steadfast to all these ordinances wheresoever he goes. Suits at law between the members were discouraged and forbidden, except as a last resort in all the Saxon guilds. The Shipman's Guild provided that the alderman, or master, and the other members should do their best to adjust a quarrel, but if they were unable, then the alderman should give them leave to make their suit at common law. In the Guild of the Holy Cross, it was declared that no brother or sister of the Guild should go to law for a debt or a trespass until he had asked leave of the aldermen and of the men of the Guild. The statutes of the Guild of St. John the Baptist, adopted in 1374, are very clear on this point. There it is said that a member cannot sue until he has shown his grievance to the aldermen and Guild brethren that are chief of the council, and it adds that the aldermen and the Guild brethren shall try their best to make them agree. And if they cannot agree, they may make their complaint at what place they will. The same provision is met within all the constitutions of the Masonic Guild. The earliest of them, the Regius Manuscript, prescribes in case of a dispute a love day or arbitration. The Lansdowne says that when a wrong is done by one of the members to it the other, the other masters and fellows must try to make them agree. And if they cannot agree, they may go then to the common law, which is the very expression used in the Shipman's Guild cited above. We must note it as a very strong proof of the connection between the early guilds and the modern lodges that this unwillingness to permit the brethren to carry their personal disputes out of the craft and into the publicity of the courts was fully developed in the charges of the speculative masons adopted in 1723. In these, it is said, in the true spirit of the old guilds to which speculative freemasonry succeeded, that with respect to brothers or fellows at law, the master and brethren should kindly offer their mediation which ought to be thankfully accepted by the contending brethren. But if that submission is impracticable, they must, however, carry on their process or lawsuit without wrath and rancor. There is no need to extend these comparisons. Sufficient has been done to show that there is a close resemblance in their mode of organization, method of action, constitution, and spirit between the Saxon guilds and the modern Masonic lodges, which actually are, under another name, only Masonic guilds. This likeness indicates an historical connection between the two, and this connection may be more closely traced through the local companies of London and other cities of England. That these latter were the direct offshoot from the former is a fact generally admitted by writers on the subject, and of it there can be no doubt. In the trade guild, says Thorpe, we may see the origin of our civic companies. To these civic companies, and to one of them particularly, the Mason's Company of Bassingall Street, London, the reader's attention must be invited. And that ends our current chapter, so we'll pick it up next time with chapter 54, The London Companies and the Mason's Company. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll try to get them a little more often coming up. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment.